your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockeypedia cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Sean Shapiro. Sean, what's going on on this lovely Monday afternoon? It's it's a good day, man. It's been uh, I, I I got to sit I got to sit on the couch and watch both game sevens. The kids went over to the grandma and grandpa's for the weekend, so I got to enjoy just sit and watch hockey all day yesterday. And it's a good day. What a weekend of NHL playoff hockey it was. Um, yeah. In like a forty eight hour span, we had last year's Stanley Cup champion eliminated, the team that played in the last three Stanley Cup finals. And the Eastern Conference representative last year, the Tampa Bay Lightning, eliminated. And then the best regular season team, or I guess we should say the most successful regular season team in NHL history, also got eliminated. All of them in a 48-hour span in round one. Uh, the playoff field is wide open. It's very exciting. We're going to have some fresh new matchups and stories to talk about. And I guess, you know, the the main summary you can take from this is that teams like the Lightning, Avalanche, and Bruins just need to learn how to win. They just didn't have what it takes to uh to get over the hurdle when push came to shove. They just didn't have the uh, the experience and the veteran presence and the intangibles to win these big games and that's how I think that's how you justify it. I love how the uh I love how the last of the teams remaining, right? The last one to win the Stanley Cup was 2006 for the Hurricanes, right? And I think I think they're the only team still in that's won the cup here in the cap era i think if i if i i've double checked i'd have to double check that i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure of all the teams still in no other team has won the cup in in the cap era actually so no sorry new jersey would have won didn't well, new jersey's playing tonight right yeah. when they jersey, last won no they haven't won since well, 2005 they won in 2003 or 2003 right i'm sure so yeah, okay. So it's still, on. still before the, still before the cap came into play. So yeah, I, I love that fact where we've got no matter what happens, the shortest drought of someone winning is going to be what seventeen years or something like that. So I love that. It's great, and uh, I, I, I love the discourse today of how every everywhere, and I, I say that in air quotes. I love that the the discourse today of the Bruins lose, and so now the. The, the entire city of Boston is complaining about how the playoff format works. So that's a, that's a, it's a wonderful tradition today. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. Well, let's, let's start with talking about the Bruins and how about that? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about Sounds Bruins good. Panthers. It seems like that's a, a good topic of discussion for us. Um, oh, I should, I should note the hurricanes did win in 2005, 2006. Yeah. That was the most recent one. Um, okay. Bruins Panthers. So, I did a round one preview a couple of weeks ago, uh, which feels like another lifetime ago now with uh, our colleague, Jack Fraser at EPRing side and Jack Hahn. And we did about 20 minutes going into extreme detail, outlining red flags, kind of problems that Florida could uniquely cause Boston stylistically that gave us pause and just being like, all right, Boston's just going to carry over the regular season success and walk all over them. Now, Acknowledging that we gave them, I think, more time earnestly in our preview than anyone did, I still, just seeing the way it unfolded in real time, was obviously stunning and did not see that coming, certainly. Um, you know, they go up 3-1 in the series. They outplay them pretty significantly in Game 5. Allmark makes the mistake in overtime to lose that game. In Game 6, they're up 4-3 and 5-4 in the third period. Um, and, you know, you'd think that the league's stingiest defense from the regular season would be able to win a game in which their team scores five goals, but they lose that one. And then they're up 3-2 two 
at home in the final minute of game seven and wind up losing that in overtime as well. And so when you put all those things together with the backdrop of the regular season success, it's understandably a very big topic. Oh yeah, definitely. It's uh, I mean, I, uh, that and you add in the fact you, you laid out all those storylines already. And then the goalie who was going to win the Vesna, let's, we, we, those votes have already been cast. He's going to win the Vesna is was doesn't get the net in game seven. And I would argue maybe the question I talked to someone earlier today, they're like, Oh, that's bold to switch the, to make the goalie change in game seven, where arguably the bigger question is maybe you should have considered doing that earlier when you kind of looked how Olmark went. Olmark did not look like himself at all after I mean, throughout the entire series, like I think you and I were messaging back and forth as someone else pointed out properly with like the way he was moving his recoveries, like he did not look like a healthy Linus Olmark who will win the Vesna trophy. Yeah. I mean, certainly gave up more goals than we're accustomed to seeing. I think like Mm -hmm. the game two in particular, where he gave up the most uh, before I really went off the rails uh, was mostly uh, due to the play in front of them where there's so many defensive yeah, zones turnover and they're they really hanging them out to dry. I'm like they had all regular season, right? So if your argument the whole time was, well, Sor- what Soros or Sorokin or Hellebuck did this year was more impressive because of the team in front of them. And, you know, Allmark's case is being bolstered by what is happening in front of his defensive system. Then seeing that I think must have been very sort of vindicating or like, aha, see, this is exactly what I was talking about. When he's put in this situation where Soros, Hellebuck and Sorokin were in multiple, many more times this season, he wasn't able to, to, to carry them. Now, I thought he played pretty well up until game five or so in game four in particular, right? He had that amazing game. He has an assist. Mm-hmm. He stops like 45 plus shots or something. He gets in that fight with Matthew Kachuk at, towards the end of the game. Um, he wasn't moving right though. He was clearly hurt. Uh, I'm no goalie expert. You are more so than yeah. I. Uh, you could just tell like every time he was getting up after a save or after a stoppage, he looked like an old man who was like gingerly getting to his feet after sitting in his reclining chair for too long, right? And it was like, it was very bizarre. The The first goal he gave up to Brandon Montour in uh, in game six should have been the the biggest red flag. Like if you go back and yep. watch that one, Montour is a four on three power play or whatever, and he gets a good good look, but it's like a short side goal. And re- Allmark's reaction after that one was very bizarre. Like he, yeah. he, he looked like he it was a guy who just like did not trust his body physically and was mm-hmm. very upset about it. Um, so... I think that ultimately and obviously how game five and six transpired was why they made the decision they did in game seven. I I thought, what do you think about Swayman's performance? Because he had the few, he had a couple bad goals, right? The first one kind of leaked yeah. through. Um, the the tire by Montour was one he probably should have had. But for the most part, I thought, considering the circumstances of not playing for as long as he did, held up very well, made some huge saves in overtime before they finally, uh, before Florida finally broke through. And so I don't think you can blame yeah. Swayman on that, but no, yeah, certainly no, no, Montgomery, no. like definitely put him in a tough spot after not playing for weeks to just jump in in game seven in that spot. And so I think that's where you can kind of take issue with Montgomery's handling of it and his lack of, quite frankly, accountability after the game when he was asked about it. And he's like, oh, maybe you should ask our goalie coach about that and, and, and kind of just deflecting well, as opposed to, you know, taking taking the brunt of it. There there was a, there's been a couple things in the past couple weeks where like <laughs> the Montgomery one just like, there's been we talk about hockey, right? Hockey is a it's a culture of accountability, and you uh, and, and and everything like that. And it's some of the deflections we've seen 
from a uh, when it comes to actually answering questions and and being accountable on things has been semi hilarious in the past couple of weeks. Um, so Jim Montgomery saying, "Oh well, you have to ask the goalie coach on that one." A, you're the head coach. You you make the decision with him. And B, and <laughs> B, even if the goalie coach makes your decision, because now I know when I covered Jim Montgomery in Dallas, he really did let the Stars goalie coach uh, Jeff Rees really make some of those decisions. So that's that's fine. But as a head coach, you still are responsible for that decision. You are still responsible for you. You can at least you can at least own it in the right way of answering the question or discussing it or you know what also actually making the goalie coach available to talk to as a whole is a whole nother thing like i mean it's something where i i laugh like bob essen is probably on the plane home from on, on, or not plane home they, they were at home is, is right. driving home that night and like this is this is this is this is my fault he's just he's just <laughs> like, feeling the tire tracks over his back yes, after he just yes. got pushed under the bus i mean yes. yeah i just don't understand <laughs> what there is to gain from montgomery's perspective because it's not like anyone would see that quote and be like oh we should really cut him some slack here it wasn't his yeah. fault right it's like if anything it's just gonna anger people that are already upset with whatever decisions they felt like he fumbled along the way even more yeah. it's like it's a weird doubling down now you know the goaltending thing is one thing i yeah. i would say that the bigger story here though in my opinion, is that the Panthers outplayed them in this series. There were a couple yes, games yes, where the Bruins, yeah. like, you know, looked like the regular season team that they were and dominated. But in totality, if you look at it, the Panthers at 515 in particular were just flat out better. They outscored them. They had more chances. They won the expected goal battle. You watch the games from the high test perspective. They certainly out hustled them, outworked them, executed their game plan to a T. And that's where, you know, you can say, okay, well, Montgomery didn't have his top two centers for for a handful of games, but neither of them were clearly healthy for the entirety of it, even when Bergeron did come back. So it's like, all right, well, that's obviously going to hang up you a little bit. I would still say that with the depth and the personnel the Bruins had, they certainly had more than enough pieces to to make it work and make adjustments if they were if they were able to, and they just didn't, and they just kept making these same mistakes over and over again. I mean, you watch it and it's it's very like rudimentary stuff. What Florida was doing with their forecheck and they were just punishing that. They just kept like getting Boston to make the same mistakes over and over again and watching that series. Sure. The players need to execute better and all that, but that's where I would lay blame on, on Jim Montgomery and the job he did in the series much more than how he handled divvying up the goalie starts. It's the fact that the series yeah. transpired the way that he did. And there was no, there was no like plan in place of what to do when you took that obvious punch that Florida was going to throw in your way metaphorically, right? Like we, we went into the series and people like myself were, were able to be like, all right, this project's going to be a problem. Boston needs to find a way to navigate it. And they just had no answers for it in all any of the seven games. Yeah. I mean, it's the interesting thing. This is the, just a great question I have about Jim Montgomery. And this isn't, he won. Um, obviously he was a winner in the college game before he was the coach, of the Dallas stars, um, and, and obviously I, I know him pretty well from covering his him in Dallas, but my really big question about Jim Montgomery is can, can he coach a team to, to win a playoff series just because, and I, and so like, you know, right. Like an 82 game regular season, you're not really, it's, it's one-offs. So you're not playing the same team over and over again. There's not teams making adjustments to you. We've talked about that before. It's one of the great things about playoff series is the schematic chess battle. And Jim Montgomery, even by his own admission, has, has said that when he was in Dallas and 
the year that he uh, the Stars lost to the Blues in that seven game series, like he got he got the equivalent of coaching bullied by Craig Berube in the series, and like like he got out coached and that. Yeah, series I mean was, they went yeah. as far as Ben Bishop dragged them in that series. Right? Exactly, exactly, and they got they and and they and they got out coached and. And you look back as I've talked to some other people too, where like you go through and you look at his time in Denver and, and obviously you win an NCAA title at Denver. There's no, nothing, take nothing away from that, but it's win one game. It's not mm-hmm. the, the, the college hockey format is win one game advance. It's not about, okay, how are you going to, so Jim Montgomery and Paul Moore in, I don't know if Jim Montgomery is a coach who's going to win those chess matches with another NHL head coach in a series. He could be it just at this point, he hasn't proven that. And it's, and that's so as much as well, getting schooled by Paul Maurice is a pretty tough look in particular. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is. I mean, uh, how much do you buy into this, this idea? And it's certainly like, I'm willing to, to give it time. I'm not immediately being like, no, that's not a thing, even though it's really tough for us to quantify the sort of psychological element of Florida clearly had to play meaningful games down the stretch, right? Just to make the playoffs. Like they couldn't take their foot off the gas. They they were sort of getting all of these mini tests in along the way and passing them clearly because they wound up making the playoffs. Whereas Boston had big games down the stretch in the sense that they were clearly trying to, to set the record. But in the grand scheme of things, the pressure of that was was different. And there was no real on-ice adversity at any point during the regular season. We keep hearing that for Boston, right? It was such smooth sailing. They had like one mini little speed bump around the all-star break where they lost a couple of games, but for the most part, it was just everything was going their way. And when everything comes so easily to you, it's tough to to prepare yourself for what the playoffs are going to look like, right? So you come to the postseason, and I think it becomes a lot more difficult to do that adapting and adjusting and sort of finding ways to overcome obstacles and win games in different ways when you haven't necessarily had to do that at any point previously. It's like showing up to a test and not having done any sort of studying beforehand, right? It's like, all right, yeah, no, this will be this will be fine. And you yeah. show up and it's like, wow, I'm not prepared for this at all. And that's what it it looked like. It, I, I don't know if that's a lazy way to break down no, what, what, I, what we're I, seeing, but when you watch that overtime, like they were, they yeah. looked absolutely petrified. Like yeah, they had yeah. a couple no, chances at the start, and then they were like, "All right, we're not messing up." And Florida just did whatever they wanted until they finally no, scored. I think you're 100 percent right because I think it's hard to. It goes to it's it's hard to lie to yourself as motivation on something because it's like I was. I got to I covered Boston in person about three or four times this year with a couple times they came through Detroit. Um, I one of the I was actually in Tampa in January around the same time they were there, and and I. It, Every time you talk to the players and everything like that, even on the record, off the record, informally, whatever, it was always, oh no, the re- this this president's trophy, chase this record, it doesn't mean anything. All that matters happens. And they basically had to lie to themselves the entire time through, right? Where it's like, okay, none of this really matters. Really matters about being about winning that whole thing. But at the end of the day, it did matter, right? Like it did. Like it, like it, it did. It having the best record and or being the best, the best statistically record team in NHL history for the regular season, it did matter. And to, to say it didn't is, is, is doesn't, is, is kind of a lot lying to yourself. And then all of a sudden though, to flip a switch on it and to be in this space where it's like, okay, the Panthers have been playing do or die hockey. That, that was the, it's this was that it was you either win this game or your season's over. And it's been that way for a while where Boston just kind of 
you walk in, you go in and then it, it's the same. The test example is great. Cause like, um, one of the things like it's on a human level of this to give it's a funny example. So my wife is going back to school right now for, for another degree in something right now. And so the, before she goes and she takes a test, she takes a practice test. Right. And then she she always comes out of the practice test. Like, like, Oh my God, I didn't get this right. There's, there's, new, there's new stuff that I didn't even know was going to be on the test. Exactly. And right. then, and then she goes and passes the test a week later. Like it's, well, the Bruins never got the practice test. And so it's, they were just thrown right into it and they got, they got to go against the kid who's taken like 16 practice tests with, with like the yeah, Panthers did. I, I, I will say the only reason why I kind of, I kind of raise my eyebrows when I see like stuff, like, like this is clearly a part of it. I think it's very lazy to just oh. be like, this is what happened. Oh yeah. No, no, nothing yeah, else. Because not only does it do a disservice to the way Florida played, but, but Sean, like, Tampa Bay just lost three straight games at home in overtime yeah. with like the same roster that they just made three Stanley Cup finals with. Yeah. Like if there was a team that you would say was oh, prepared yeah. to win those yeah. games, if you if you think clutch and experience so and all this matters, no, it's it's a bunch of coin flips. The puck bounces in certain ways and goes in or doesn't. And we wind up in hindsight attributing a lot of this stuff oh. post hoc to, to what we want, basically. You see it the way you want to see it. Yeah, I know. And I think it's a factor. And as you said, it is, it's not the entire thing. There's the spot where, okay, you can go through before the series like you did and break down the red flag schematically that Boston got got burned on. Which wound up it's, happening along yeah. the way, by the way. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You're very smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, not, it's not just me. I think, unfortunately, maybe Jim Montgomery should have been paying a bit more attention, but I, uh, I digress. Maybe. Maybe you should listen to the maybe you should listen to the PDO cast. Like, well, like uh, like a couple other very uh, successful recently Stanley Cup winning coaches do. So maybe you're maybe you're onto something there. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I I think there's certainly a lot to play. I, I you know Florida, it Boston really did seem like they just weren't necessarily surprised by it, but they were like kind of just like hoping that Florida would would settle down and just like chill yeah. out and like be like, all right, we're just gonna r- ride this out and. Florida just kept going after them and yeah. playing their game the way they had the regular season. And so that was impressive. Um, any other, Oh, I, I will. And get to yeah. tie a bow on this. Did you see after the game, then Jim Montgomery was asked for it. And certainly that close to the, your season just ending. I think you got to take every single like bit of media for what it's worth. Yeah. But it was notable that Montgomery described it as like confusion. I'm not sure if, if that quote was attributed to like, his feeling about it or what the team was feeling on the ice or just the general vibe of it. But that does certainly tie into what we're saying here about the lack of preparedness for being thrown into this spot. And if you're saying, wow, we're, we're surprised. Like we were confused by the fact that we weren't winning this game easily because that's what happened at every single point in the regular season. That's kind of what I took from that. Well, there's, I don't know if you saw it. It was on the, uh, it was on the T I think it was the, TNT broadcast. I can't remember what one of the one of the, it was either I think it was Game Six where it was uh, Montgomery was interviewed on the bench and like he mm-hmm. he had that whole bravado where he's just like oh Pasternak's playing well he, I think he's gonna get one this game like just it's 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 a it's a it's a nice bravado and a way to push guys and everything like that but sometimes you need to like get the whiteboard out in between periods and be like look. Let's do this. And I don't know if that happened during the series. I mean, I don't think it did based off mm. watching it. So, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of the uh, of the note yeah. of the broadcast, right? So, yeah, yeah, you were getting a mix of TNT and ESPN for this series um, sprinkled in, in in the U.S. I assume 
you were watching those feeds and not the Sportsnet broadcast, right? I we saw there's uh I'm able to get those I'm able to get the Sportsnet one on the uh when they do the because I can get over the air on like the Saturday night or whatever or whatever. So I was I watched one or two games on well, Sportsnet. But, uh, so in this series they were they yeah. were running John Shorthouse and John Garrett uh, in yeah. game 7 Garrett wasn't available so they brought in Greg Millen but um you know I'm a little biased here because I basically like grew up listening to those guys on Canucks local feeds. Yeah. But it was really cool to see them after years of calling essentially meaningless Canucks games calling <laughs> calling these big games and doing a fantastic job of it and John Shorthouse in particular should be doing like national Stanley Cup final games like he is so good he's a and he's a very he's really good broadcaster he's I'm, very I'm, good I'm not sure I'm not sure how much of this is unique to him and how much of it might be more so common practice and I just don't know it but I've heard that he um and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this he like he's while he's calling the game he's there's this audio feed of like like from the rink, right? Basically, right? It's like a, it's like a feed of like everything that just happening at ice level, and so what you'll notice with him is whenever a post is hit or you know a shot goes off the back bar and in and just quickly comes out, most commentators aren't able to pick up what happened, and so they're like delayed on it or they're confused or they they call it incorrectly, right? They're like, oh, I think that hit the bar, and then the play gets stopped, and in review yeah. you see it actually hit the back bar and went in and was a goal. And and he's able because of his commitment to his craft. While he's like doing this live, he has about a hundred percent success rate of noticing exactly what happened with where the shot hit or what it was. Or he's like, oh, I, that that sounded like it hit the outside of the bar. That's because like he's hearing that and he's in tune with that. And obviously, that's a very sort of nerdy thing to care about. But as someone who puts together like mixtapes after the fact yeah. of cool goals or highlights, it's so frustrating when an awesome play is ruined by a play-by-play call where the commentator didn't notice the puck actually went in and it just totally like takes away the energy from what should be an awesome moment. And so you never get that with short house. And I just wanted to give him credit because he's, he's fantastic at his job. Yeah. Any, uh, good, great play-by-play allows the play to is where you accentuate the play, but you don't take away from it. And he does a really good job of that. And there are, and you're right, there are some, uh, iconic or highlight goals in the past couple of years where, um, there's been uh, some play-by-play that has tried to overshadow the play itself. So, mm-hmm. um, is there anything else on on this series that you want to get to? Because we're gonna we're gonna move uh, on. We're talking about Ottinger just, and the I Jets mean, and stuff. I would but... just I would just say, I mean, Matthew Kachuk is the like the villain, the anti-hero, the NHL like lucked into. Like he's like the he's like the what's the whole like Batman line? Like the hero that like you they they don't really deserve but they need. Like mm-hmm. he's such a he's so great. Like. I mean, the fact that the the fact you can build him versus Toronto is going to be great. Like, it's just, I, I love it. It's, it's great for, it's great for hockey that, but, and, it, and it's hilarious too, because the NHL does everything to create, to, to create the complete opposite of him when it comes to its players. So I love it. Yeah. And for all the like, you know, shenanigans, post whistle and all that. And I could, I could do without some of that stuff, certainly, although it is part of the, yeah, the yeah, package yeah. and what makes him the player that he is on the winning goal there, like mm-hmm. wins a battle oh, yeah. behind the net, right. Uh, makes life just miserable for whatever defense was back there. They work the puck back out. Bennett passes it to Verhage and he just beelines right in front of Swayman completely takes his eyes away. If you look at it, it's like, I mean, it was a, it was a high danger shot and it was a fantastic finish by Verhage, but Swayman had absolutely no line of sight on it at all because all he could yep. see 
was Matthew Kachuk's butt basically. And yeah. so it yeah. was like a masterclass of how you want to take away the goalie's eyes. And he did that all. And he, I mean, he's been doing it. He did it all last year. He did it all this year, certainly as well. But mm-hmm. the difference he makes on these games, like he was carrying the Panthers offensively for large stretches of this series when some of their other top players just weren't performing up to their capabilities. And so you're right. I mean, what, what, what a performance by him. Um, okay, Sean, let's uh let's take a break here. Um, and then when we come back, we'll talk about a, a couple other topics and bounce around some other series. Uh so looking forward to that. In the meantime, we're gonna do this break. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Everything Canucks before and after the games. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sean Shapiro, Sean, we did Bruins Panthers at the top. Let's um let's talk about a series that ended, uh, I believe, last Thursday. So it's been a while now, but you know, Stars Wild. You and I already did a big deep dive of it, sort of from a tactical perspective after Game Two, I believe. So I don't think we need to rehash it. In particular, you know, Minnesota was clearly very banged up and and didn't have a lot of pushback to offer offensively as that series went along. And the last game in particular was uh, a very tough watch. Um, you know, they're, they're clearly trying very hard, but everything was just kind of like weak point shots from the outside that Jake Ottinger was eating up. But I did want to talk about Ottinger a little bit now because, uh, you know, it's still, there's still a lot of runway here, um, in terms of like sample size and, 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 and he's still young, but based on the past two series now that he's played right last year's seven game series against Calgary and out these six games against Minnesota, he's establishing quite a postseason track record for himself here. And every bit of Jake Ottinger content I consume is draws me in even more from watching mm-hmm. him play to, I read this great uh, feature by a friend of the podcast, John Mattis at uh, the score, which you should read on him yeah. to um, this like seven minute sit down video that Jeff Merrick did. You can watch that on the Sportsnet YouTube feed with him, which I found riveting for a number of reasons. And we're getting into some of that here. But I want to talk a little bit about Jake Ottinger because he wasn't necessarily tested as much as some other goalies in round one, but he did basically everything you want to see from him. And I think he's going to make a big difference here, not only in round two against Seattle, but potentially if they make it to a conference final against, let's say, Edmonton. Like, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this story unfolds for him. I mean, he was before the season started, he, before the playoffs started, he was my con Smythe pick actually. So I will, that's out there on Twitter somewhere. And and as people will know, even as someone who covered the stars, I am, I didn't pick the star. I this is the first time I picked the stars to win a playoff series since 2019 against Nashville. So I have as much as a uh, franchise near and dear to my heart for my coverage. I've not uh, just because that's not the reason that I like Jake Ottinger's give like Jake Ottinger is such a great story. It's such a great development. Um, I love the way he approaches the game. Like so many I love that he one of my favorite things about that makes Jake Ottinger tick is he loves being the bad guy. Like he loves be like he loves the he loves the the ride into town black hat mentality. Like he's one of the few goalies I know who like he prefers road games to home games. Like he loves the like he 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 loves that that mentality where everyone in the building is rooting against him. And it's it's one of those things where like we saw it in the uh in the series against Minnesota, he goes back to a place where like, yes, it was 
it was really nice and cute that his grandma's there and in the crowd and everything like that. But really, so much of his motivation is just shutting the entire world down more so than making six or seven people happy. I, I love it. I also love that it's it's also a bit of vindication um, for the stars franchise and organization because it's fitting, obviously, that the guy I'm going to touch on in a second, who's is in the playoffs with Edmonton, not albeit not as, as the starter and Jack Campbell, but with how they tried and failed with the first round draft pick goalie to they did actually did everything right. They actually fixed what their issues were from the Jack Campbell time to the Jake Ottinger time. And like, he's great. I, I, I love the Jake Ottinger story. There's so many parts of it. Well, 944 save percentage and 13 yep. career playoff starts, right? Uh, yeah. A lot of that is padded by that ridiculous game seven, certainly against Calgary last year, right? But that's not not to discredit it because that's just yeah. adds to the lore here. Um, in this series, you know, they they gave up, I don't know how many goals he gave up in the game three, but they go down 2-1. And from that point forward, he basically gave up two goals against total in the final yeah. three games when the outcome was actually potentially up for grabs, right? He gave up a goal late. Uh, in game four and then another goal late in game six, but basically just lock him down from that point forward. And that Merrick interview that I was telling you about, I'm not sure if you had a chance to see it, but see it, but some of the quotes really tie into what you're saying there about yeah. him embracing yeah. that, that thing. And, and, you know, there's a fine line between kind of confidence and cockiness or whatever. I personally don't care. I love both from my athletes. Yeah. I, I I think to be successful, you need to be, that at least some way, I think pretty much everyone is. It's just a matter of how you choose to express it or how much you're willing to show the world in that regard. Um, but he, in that interview, he describes the feeling when the news broke that the Stars signed Brayden Holtby a couple of years ago to come in and, and take starts from him. Uh, he described that as feeling like a slap in the face. Yeah. And then, um, you know, he praises Holtby and Hudobin for like the things that they taught him along the way and being good mentors and all that. But he also says that uh, I knew what I wanted and that they were standing in my way, essentially, in, re- yeah. in, 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 in reference to being the starter for the Dallas Stars. And so, I, I mean, that's that's a catnip for me, right? Seeing that and then seeing the performance back it up, I'm like, this is this is everything I could possibly want from a player that you should be marketing as as the guy. Oh yeah, I uh, one of the in the Stars to give to give Dallas to give Jim Nil credit. I, I was uh, something I was I was privy to before they signed when they signed Holtby. I remember I had a conversation with a couple people from the stars about like, hey, what's the plan here? And they were like, well, we're going to send Jake down to the AHL and we know we've pissed him off. <laughs> like like that was like that was the internal dialogue. They're like, we know we know we've pissed him off. We're going to send him down to the AHL and we're going to see what he does. And then he went down. Went down to the AHL, started the years, played like 10 or 11 games with Texas, whatever it was, and then never set foot in the AHL again. Like they knew exactly what they were doing. They they were pushed so credit for pushing the button the right way, but also credit to like knowing your guy too. Cause he's always been what what if the so there's a there's a great story. Uh Jake Ottinger has always been driven by competition. It's one of so as a freshman in high school, he takes Lakeville North to the state title game. And then goes joins the national U.S. national development team program um, as a sophomore and junior. He goes to Boston University. He graduated high school after his junior year and gra- goes to Boston University as a 17 year old, and then gets drafted out by Dallas in the first round or anything like that. But one of the things 
that uh, there was a comp. There's the Holtby conversation, mm-hmm. Holtby Hodobin at the end. But there was before that. Some people forget because so the stars had also drafted Colt Point, who mm-hmm. was com- coming out of a who had a tremendous collegiate career at Colgate. Was someone who was really good. Was part of had reached was on the Canadian team for World Junior, and essentially it was uh, there was a point where they're trying to. The reason Colton Point came out of college a year earlier was because he thought he had to come out a year earlier to get he ahead tried, of Jake Onshire. He tried to beat him, beat him to the punch. <laughs> he tried. He thought he had to. Yes, he thought he had to. He thought he had to beat Ottinger to be a pro. He had. He's like, if I get ahead of Ott, where right. Ottinger, and I talked to J- and, and I know and and I've talked to people who know Jake well about this. So they looked at it, they're like, well, he's like, it's like, well, I don't need gimmicks. I'm just gonna go beat him straight up and then obviously colton put po- now colton points certain things that are completely out of yes of course <laughs> but, you know but it's, it's, <laughs> it's like it's like the madman meme with don draper in yeah, the elevator yeah, yeah when when uh his like understudies like uh, I, f- I feel sorry for you i feel bad for you and then he just looks at me he's like i don't think about you at all that's yeah. that's yeah. that's yeah. Colton yes. point jake on yes. jake on yes. being like i yeah do whatever you want man i'm, I'm coming <laughs> i'm gonna yeah. take that job yeah. uh yeah. i love i love that that is a uh that's a fantastic story and uh yeah it'll be interesting like these might be famous last words because yeah the playoffs are very weird and random and especially goalie performance can swing wildly but my confidence in him right now in terms of just stopping shots he at least should stop um is about as high as you know pretty much anyone in the league and um i'm very curious to see in, the, in this series against seattle i'm doing a big preview of the of the series tomorrow so mm-hmm. i don't want to step on the toes of it too much but it's a fascinating matchup because the star, uh, the the Kraken, you know, they led the league in shooting percentage in the regular season. They've been very opportunistic. I think some of it is certainly just a magical ride and good things going their way and not necessarily indicative of something they're doing so special, but some of it is they clearly attack very quickly and kind of put opposing defenses and opposing goalies in some com- potentially compromising positions where they're not ready for shots. And so this is going to be a good test for him in round two and if he can keep it up I, th- I certainly think it's a bigger offensive test than what minnesota was able to pose yeah. with kaprizov clearly limited and hartman hurt and all that and gerald erickson not in the lineup um that's going to be a good one and if he keeps this going in another five to seven games in that series then all of a sudden heading into the conference final we're gonna have a very interesting story to tell about whoever he plays coming out of the pacific yeah it's gonna be uh i i i love the uh I, I love the Dottinger story. I love where it's going. Um, and it's going to be, it, you're right about this. The Seattle team is going to be, and I, once again, we won't step on your toes for your, with your preview, but it, this Seattle team is interesting. Just it's, it's a team that is just like Minnesota last year is like, okay, what Kaprizov does determines everything right. Mm-hmm. Offensively. That's what it was like. This Seattle team is so much more of like, okay, as a goalie, you're, you're doing everything is it comes it comes from everywhere so but i'll let you i'll well, let you I'll it's, let, it's, it's yeah. also an, it's, an, it's a nightmare yeah. to to prepare for because yeah. not only do they have 15 different guys score against colorado in that series but the hero of game seven oliver brookson is a fantastic player but yeah. had a tough offensive year the puck wasn't going in for him had zero goals in the first six games i believe in game seven scores two goals hits the post another three other times and it's like 
it's, this is this is the Seattle story, right? It's like yeah, 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 this guy yeah. who did not produce in the first six games from a goal scoring perspective carries us in the biggest game of the season. And so um, it's a totally different matchup. So yeah, it's cool. And it's a fresh one, right? It's one that yeah. we have oh, yeah. obviously haven't seen since this is Seattle's first year in the playoffs. So it's uh, that's fun as well. Okay. Um, let's end the note. Let's end the podcast on a different note, <laughs> potentially less, less fun. Um, but let's talk about Rick Bonus and the Jets because they got eliminated recently as well. I, I have to admit, I didn't cover this series very closely on the podcast as it was happening, just because I found it deeply uninteresting. Like I was watching all the games. Um, I just, I, I came away from it just lamenting how much time I had spent this season watching this Winnipeg Jets team, because it was such a similar story to the Rick bonus story of his stars teams the past couple of years. And I was just, I just realized it was valuable time. I, I was never going to get back that I had spent and invested in it. And, and it, it's my job. So it is, it is what it is, but um, I don't know. I just, I was very ready for this jet season to end. And the alarming part is if you, you know, bonus has that very fired up speech after they get eliminated in game five and you're like, all right, whoa, is this, and we can unpack that, but oh, is this going to lead to some serious change finally? And then, nope, he's coming back. Kevin Day, I was coming back. We can talk about the personnel, but I would be very surprised if any of it significantly changed and we're just going to roll it over. And that is the Winnipeg Jets story. Well, I mean, it's the, <laughs> the Jets will come back next year. And I mean, it's funny, like Rick bonus went and it's the, in the, when Rick a bonus is an effective head, Rick bonus is not a, okay. Rick bonus when Rick bonus is an effective head coach. He's coaching from crisis management mode. One of the reasons that when the stars back in 2019, when Jim Montgomery got fired on mm -hmm. shockingly and the stars went into the bubble, the it was stars needed a crisis manager. They needed somebody who could come in and basically be a strong narrative for them and they could fight for and everything like that. That's what they needed. It was not, it had nothing to do with systematically. He didn't really change much of anything. He's very, um, he's a good defensive assistant coach, but he's not really great at creating much of anything else. And it almost felt like, I, I don't know how much intent it was or not, but it just almost felt like he was creating the crisis to go into next season. Like that's what the post, like that's like when he walked in, when he walked up to the podium, it wasn't a question that teed him off, right? Like it wasn't a question. Like he literally he, he it, came it, in prepared. Yeah. And he literally it literally starts with, well, this is going to be short. No questions? Good. And then the first question came. Like he literally came in with it teed up. Like it to me it just felt like, okay, the the Jets are teeing up the crisis so they can galvanize around we got through this tough thing together. We can be annoying, we can rely on Connor Hellebuck and we can be in the wild card race next year. And that's what the jets will be next year. Like, <laughs> like yeah, I mean, listen, like, there's something yeah. clearly rotten there that extends much beyond oh, Rick yeah. bonus, right? He's not the first person to yes. get a peek behind the curtain within the organization, whether it's a player or a coach or, or, or anyone involved mm -hmm. and come away and be like, you know what? This isn't it. For this is, this is like, this is not for me. And just want to like get out of there and move on. Um, at the same time, though, I will say as someone who's been very critical of Rick Bonus in the past of his coaching, uh, not a shock to me that the offense just plummeted this season, particularly in the second half, totally dried up. I know they had injuries and were missing key players in this series in particular, right? Morrissey goes out. Ehlers was very limited, came back at the end. Shifley missed the final game. 
They scored six five-on-five goals in five games in the series, which was just the continuation of how they ended the regular season, continuation of years of Rick Bonus hockey, and this is kind of what you get. And bringing all this back and maintaining status quo, like this is what the Jets want to be, right? They're very content being somewhere between the 14th and 20th best team in the NHL, which is what they've been for the past four years. And they don't have a lot of aspirations for being better than that. They clearly don't want to be worse than that in pursuit of being better eventually, right? Certainly we can talk about that. You listen to Kevin Shelvadeoff's press conference yesterday, and he had this just amazing quote where he gets asked about the core, right? which was called out by Rick Bonus earlier. Mm-hmm. And he says, this core got us to the playoffs in five of the past six years. That can't be lost. You play the sport to have the opportunity to get to the playoffs. Do you? I was under the impression that 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 you play to win the Stanley Cup, right? And I think that is very, I know what he's trying to say. And there's this belief yeah. that anything could happen. You get into the playoffs, Florida beats Boston. You know, you get lucky, you go yes. on this magical Cinderella run. It works out for you. If that's your plan, good luck to your organization because that is not how you build a Stanley cup contender and a Stanley cup winner. And so that, I think that is at the root of this beyond bonus, beyond the players, that is the problem. It's so much of the, well, so much of this hockey mantra that we've all bought into and, and that we, we sell as a way to watch the game and it's great. And Florida can beat Boston. Any team can beat anyone, but too often the people who it's almost become cyclical, right? Too often the people times people running teams think, Oh, I can now use that as an excuse for anything that doesn't go right. Well, we got in like it. It's I, you, you like, what's the path forward here, right? Like if you're, if you're, if you're Winnipeg, like what's the path forward here to do, to do anything beyond what you've done? Are you just going to be a, okay, maybe playoff run team and nothing more. I, I just, there's so many teams where there's so many teams where you look and you're like, okay, I don't know if it'll happen, but I at least see the path. Like I yeah. at least see it. I at least see this is feasible where you could do this with Winnipeg. It's so hard to see a, like a real path forward. And like, well, I mean, the one of the, not... one of the years he's citing there in five out of six is losing three, one in the qualifying round to Calgary in the bubble. Which I, which does not count in my books as making the playoffs, but uh, I guess that is uh, that's semantics. But yeah, yeah it, like to my eye, um, it's strange that they get handled with kid gloves by so many media people. I think it's because mm-hmm. they're one of the Canadian franchises, I guess. But yeah. um, one of the most unserious organizations in terms of actually trying to win that we have. Even some of the bad teams are at least trying. Right. And, and yeah. they're clearly not doing a good job, but you can't argue with the effort or they're losing intentionally so that they can one day win. Whereas this Winnipeg team just wants to be the middle of the pack and just keep rolling it over, right? Keep maintaining that status quo. And so you ask what the point for what what the path forward is. Well, yeah. if I had any faith in their ability to to do the right things, I'd say there is a very viable path forward because you look and it's like, all right. Wheeler, Shifley, Nino Niederreiter, Dylan DeMello, Brendan Dillon, and Connor Hellebuck are all UFAs next summer who are making reasonable cap hits, certainly if you retain and use your three retention spots. Very interesting pieces um, 
to different degrees for a contender. And you could just totally remake your franchise and your future outlook here by just recouping a significant amount of capital, right? And I have absolutely no faith that that will happen because I don't think they want to take that step back. Everything that I've heard is that they're very afraid of the optics of what that's going to look like, even though a lot of their smart fan base is very fed up already and just like yeah. wants them to be bad. They, I don't think financially they're willing to do that. No, I mean, look at the thinly veiled threat video. What was it, like April 15th or whatever that came out where they're like, they're like, they're doing this ticket drive and it was very much like a, it's like forever Winnipeg, but like it takes all of us like, what is what is what does that mean? I mean, you're preying on 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 a market that lost. You're you're preying on. You're trying to sell tickets using the "Don't let us move again" tactic. Like it's I, I I don't that felt very scammy to me. I didn't like that at all. But that's yeah. It was it was a very but it was saying thinly, the quiet part veiled, out loud. It was a it was it was yeah, it was, yeah, it, was yeah. it was a thinly veiled threat. A threat. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Last summer, I know they were very very worried about waning interest and um you know, the situation. And so they were like jumping through hoops basically to, to get like important season ticket holders and sponsors and everything yeah. to, to stick around. And so that's why I think they're afraid of what bottom mount is going to look like. Um, Hockey DB has them at the third lowest attendance this season behind uh, or ahead of only Arizona and San Jose. Um, yeah. I don't beyond trading Pierre Luc Dubois to Montreal, I would honestly be pretty surprised if there was other significant moves, even in light of Rick Bonus's comments about the core. And so it's uh it is what it is. I saw a funny tweet where it was like, and maybe this is sad for for Jets fans, but in Connor McDavid's draft year, right? The the Jets got swept in round one. In Connor Bedard's draft year, they win one play one game in round one. And it's basically there, there was there were some stops in between that that 2018 or team or whatever that made the conference final was fantastic, yeah. but for the most part it's like almost a decade removed and it's it's the same story as it's always been and so that's uh that's pretty frustrating. Yeah, I like it's to see and because Sheffield Dayoff's been there since since day one of Winnipeg mm-hmm. 2.0, right? So it's 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 you talk about like. You know what he feels. I mean, now at least Nashville made a Stanley Cup final, at least in his. But it feels very similar to David Poyle, where it's like, at the end of at the end of their respective careers, like you'll look at David Poyle retire at the end of this season and everything like that. And he was in Nashville since like '97 or whatever it was, and they just were. They had a couple good times, but at the end of it. The winningest, like he has like the title of like the winningest GM of all time. But when you never won a Stanley Cup, did you, can you really have that title? And it just, it feels like with how things have gone with Winnipeg and looking from, and not having any further insight, but just looking at it from the outside, it's like Shevel Day off in 20 years from now, like Winnipeg will get the draft and it'll be like, oh, Kevin Shevel Day off's retiring. We'll all thank Kevin Shevel Day off for the lengthy and long service to the Winnipeg community. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, and, you know, you hear this brought up time and time again, right? Where it's like, well, it's a tough job and his hands are kind of tired because a lot of players have Winnipeg on their no move clause and and that restricts them in terms of what's the, what stuff they can do. It's like, I don't know, that seems like a cop out to me if, if any, and certainly doesn't apply here because what we're saying is that they should trade literally every single one of these guys yeah. and get back a bunch of draft picks and prospects and young players 
none of whom have no move clauses or the leverage in terms of the place they're in their career that they're at to dictate that. And so that gives you a timeline all of a sudden of up to seven years to to make something of this as opposed to just running it back with this core of like curmudgeon older players and guys who clearly are fed up and not getting along and clearly not playing as well as, as people think of them as. So um, I don't know. I just have, I have no time for, for any of those excuses. I think we Winnipeg and, and their fans certainly deserve a lot better than they've been getting. And the way they just went out with a whimper this season was, uh, was fitting and kind of should have been the final blow, but instead it feels like it's just going to be more of the same. So. Oh yeah. It'll um, be more of the same. They'll just be, the, they'll be that team. That's like always like awkwardly frustrating in fourth and fifth in the central. And that's where they'll kind of be. Mm-hmm. Which Rick bonus is he's the man for the job. Uh, I don't, I, I can't take that from him. All right. Uh, Sean, this was a blast. Um, I'll let you plug some stuff on the way out here. Let the listeners know what you've been working on. You can talk about your new podcast. You can tell them all that good stuff. Yeah, no, it's been, we've got, uh, I, I laugh at because you're, I give you, I give you so much uh, for this, for, you pointed out, I made fun of podcasts and now I do way too many podcasts. So I, I deserve that. Um, new podcast for me that with uh, me and, and me and Prashanth called Expected by Whom, where we kind of, last week we did a little bit of some analytics 101. Uh, we'll record, this comes out on Friday mornings. Check that out. Um, thanks to the, Thanks to Ryan Hanna over at the Winged Wheel podcast for handling all the production and uh, back-end stuff, so I don't have to worry about that. It's just me showing up and talking, which is great. And then uh, check out, uh, obviously, the stuff we do over at EP Ringside, but also I got the Substack. I've been still with uh, my ties to Dallas there. I've been kind of closely watching the Stars, the Stars Seattle. I was going through some video for Stars Seattle earlier today. And, nice. And then, uh, yeah, we'll... Uh, always share everything on Twitter as long as Twitter is still up and running. So well, looking forward to, it. I'm looking forward to that stars cracking series and we'll, uh, we'll have you on whatever two weeks from now to, to talk about it. I'm sure plenty to discuss. Yep. Um, all right. Well, that's it uh, for me. Just as usual, if you want to help us out, go smash that five-star button wherever you listen to PDO cast, help us out with a nice little rating and review. If you join today's show and we'll be back tomorrow, as I said, with that round two preview. So looking forward to, uh, to getting into some of the nerdy X's and O stuff there. And we'll be back tomorrow with more of the Hockey PDO cast, as always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.